Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to that passage, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. Deuteronomy chapter 5. We'll get there here in just a bit. In the year 1984, the movie Amadeus was released in theaters across the world. It is considered by some to be one of the best films of all time. The movie tells the story of two ancient musical composers, Antonio Salieri and another guy you may have heard of before named Mozart. As the story goes, Salieri loved Mozart's music and wanted to be a renowned composer in the same vein as Mozart. So much so that he makes a vow in the movie with God that he will live a devout religious life if God will make him the greatest composer of all time. He understands God to have agreed with this arrangement. Don't ask me how you discover something like that, but apparently he was confident that God had agreed with the deal. And then the plot proceeds. But time goes on, and Salieri still feels plagued by his own mediocrity as a composer. It gets worse when one day he meets his hero, Mozart, in person. And to say the least, Mozart is very unimpressive in person. He's a bit of a drunk, he's very immature, and he seems to have no interest in piety or devotion to God whatsoever, and yet his music is far better than Salieri's. Everybody knows Mozart's music, almost no one knows of Salieri's. This begins to burn at Salieri from the inside out. He does not understand how someone so foolish, so immature, so juvenile seems favored by God while he himself is mostly overlooked and forgotten despite his devotion to God. He eventually becomes so bothered by this perceived cosmic injustice in his life that he formulates a plan. He is going to trick Mozart into composing a new piece of music He will then murder Mozart before he finishes the piece, steal the composition, release it as his own creation, and then he thinks he will finally have the glory and recognition that he's always wanted as one of the world's great composers. The plan ultimately fails. Salieri goes to prison for murdering Mozart. He never achieves notoriety, and he goes to his grave thinking of himself as, quote, the patron saint of mediocrity. Quite the story, right? I bet you didn't know there was that much drama playing out behind the scenes of ancient classical music. They could probably make it into a reality TV show if they wanted to. And now we're sure that at least some of the movie, as with many historical movies, was sort of embellished for effect. It wasn't actually factual, which is another way that it's much like modern reality TV today. But the movie did really, really well. It was a box office hit. It was nominated for 53 awards. It won 40 of them, including the Academy Award for Best Picture that year. It was also parodied in an episode of Family Guy, which I think is one of the best measures of a film's success. 
is if it's parodied in the show Family Guy. But one could argue that the reason this movie connected so widely with audiences is because it centers on one of the most universally and shared understood human experiences, and that's that's that of envy. The story in the movie is about one man who was envious of another man. One person who thought of themselves as ordinary, thought of another person as extraordinary, and therefore spent their entire life trying to become like the person they saw as extraordinary. And that is truly a story as old as time. Earlier in this very series, we briefly referenced the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter four. That story plays out, I think, as a real life version of the fictional depiction of Salieri and Mozart. It's about two brothers who both bring sacrifices to God. God receives Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And Cain becomes so jealous, so envious of his brother's situation that he ends up killing him as a result. And I think what's even more significant about the story of Cain and Abel is that it is the first story we read about after sin enters the human predicament in the Bible. One of the first things that happens after sin happens is envy, jealousy of other people who we consider to be better than us, more well-off than us, more favored by God than us. I think anyone who is very self-aware at all likely knows that they are sometimes driven by envy. Here's the way Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse four actually puts it in the Bible. It says, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He says all toil, meaning people's desire to work hard, and achievement actually spring from envy, the desire to be like or become like someone else. Now, we've talked before about the complexity of a book like Ecclesiastes. Large portions of the book of Ecclesiastes actually read a little bit like a cynic's take on the world, so take that into account as you read lines like this. But still, I I think I see where he's coming from when he says something like this. If I'm honest in my own life, I am often motivated by the desire to be like or become like someone else or to have what someone else has. I I remember about six years ago, Anna and I bought our first house. We were so proud. It was way more house than we thought we would be able to afford. It was a four bed, three bath, two stories, private back patio that was awesome. I remember being amazed that we had a full size bathroom inside the primary bedroom and like thinking that was the coolest, most grown up thing that anybody could ever have. Um, Felt like I had arrived as an adult human being. Everything about the house that we bought was great. We absolutely loved it. Felt like I was on top of the world once we owned this house. Until one day, I went and saw a house that a friend of mine had just bought. And all of a sudden, I didn't like my house very much anymore. It was a four bedroom too, but it had three and a half bathrooms, which is so much better than three. It was two stories as well, but it had a yard. Our house didn't really have much of a yard. They had a bathroom inside the primary bedroom too, but their bathroom was way bigger than ours. It had two sinks, so much room for using the bathroom. It was unbelievable. Just so much space in that bathroom, you wouldn't believe it. And I started noticing that after visiting their slightly better house, 
It's amazing how quickly I went from really loving our house to thinking it was kind of underwhelming by comparison. Took a split second to change my entire outlook on what I had. All of a sudden, I felt like I needed to work harder. I needed to ask for a raise at work, not necessarily because it's good to work hard or because I needed more money. It was actually none of that. It was because I saw something that someone else had that I wanted. That was the reason. And I think that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to say there in chapter four, verse four. All toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This is the power that envy can exert over us as human beings. If you were to ask the average person in this room right now why we are driven to achieve more and more in our life, I would bet that we would admit there is at least a picture in our heads of the type of person we want to be, or the type of person we want to become. But here's the thing, I bet if we thought about it very critically at all, we would admit that that picture in our heads of the type of person that we want to be is at least loosely based on someone else. One of our friends or family members who have what we would consider to be a pretty ideal life. Some public figure, celebrity, or social media personality who has a lot of success, however we are choosing to define that word at the time. My point is that envy is a pretty universal human experience. And chances are envy motivates and fuels far more of our activities and actions and decisions than we fully realize that it does. I would bet that a lot of our lives are actually driven by us wanting things that someone else has, whether that's their house or their possessions, their income, their job, their friendships, their marriage, their singleness, their family situation, most anything else really under the sun. How much of our effort and energy would you say is spent wanting what someone else has? I'd be willing to bet it's more than we fully realize. So it's into that universal human experience that the 10th and final commandment reads as follows. Look with me at Deuteronomy 5, verse 21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So last week in the teaching, we mentioned that the word neighbor in the Old Testament can refer to pretty much anyone that you come into contact with. It's basically the same as using a word like someone in English. So here in the 10th and final commandment, we're told that we are not to covet anything that belongs to our neighbor, anything that belongs to someone else. Coveting is when you want someone else's life or some component of their life as your own. It's when you see something that someone else has and you think to yourself, I must have that in order for me to be happy to be complete, to be satisfied with my life. It's when we believe functionally that fullness of joy is found in obtaining something that someone else has. That's what it means to covet. Then the passage actually gives us some examples of things that ancient Israelites might have been inclined to covet at the time. So it mentions their neighbor's wife, or we could infer from that their husband. It could probably add to that coveting the type of relationship that our neighbor has with their husband or wife, or simply coveting that they are married if we are not. 
We also aren't to covet our neighbor's house or land. So today, that would be things like thinking, I just wish we had a house that size. I just wish we had a house in that neighborhood, in that part of town, that school district. I wish our backyard looked like their backyard. I wish I had that creativity to renovate our house the way that they renovated theirs. I think that would make me happy. It then mentions coveting your neighbor's, quote, male or female servant. Now, obviously, to modern ears, uh, it sounds like there's a much bigger problem there than just coveting, right? And we've done some work up here on Sundays before talking about ancient forms of slavery and how they probably weren't quite what you and I tend to think of them as being today. Uh, We're actually gonna post the link to those past teachings in the PDF of the sermon that we post later today. If you wanna look into that more, I'm not gonna get into all of that this morning. But the point being made in Deuteronomy chapter five is simply that we should not covet any aspect of another person's life. Anytime you and I look at another person's situation, at another person's circumstances, and we think to ourselves, my life would be better if I had what they have. The scriptures would call that coveting. Now, some of us might be wondering in response to this, why is coveting such a big deal? I mean, certainly jealousy can become a bad thing, but is, is coveting really one of the top 10 most important things in life that we shouldn't do? I think for many people, coveting could appear to be a relatively harmless sin on the surface. Like, is it really that bad to just want something that someone else has? Chances are, wanting what they have is not hurting them. They might even be flattered that we want something that they have. And according to Ecclesiastes, apparently it's the motivation behind most everything that we do. So is it really that bad to simply covet someone else's life or possessions or situation? The answer is yes, and I'll tell you why. Let me give you what I would consider to be three significant reasons that coveting can be detrimental to us individually and us as a community so that maybe we can start to understand why God would warn his people against coveting in the Ten Commandments. First problem with coveting, I would say, is that coveting kills contentment. It kills contentment. One of the fastest ways to be really unhappy with your life is to continually compare it to someone else's. Specifically, someone with more or better than what you have. So think of my own story earlier about owning a house. I was really happy, really proud, really content with the house that we bought until the moment I saw a better house than mine. Then all of a sudden, this house that I actually liked a lot seemed kind of boring by comparison. Kind of average, kind of basic. And meanwhile, nothing had actually changed about my own situation. I just happened to notice somebody with a little bit more than what I had. Coveting kills contentment. Some of us are really content right now with our income level, with our job, with our spouse, our stage of life, you name it. We're we're actually really happy with all of it as long as we stay off Instagram. But as soon as we get on Instagram and we start scrolling through other people's lives and situations and possessions and situate all of that, all of a sudden there are about 1,400 things that we absolutely must have and cannot be happy unless we have. 
I read this the other day. Uh, recent in-depth research taking place over 15 years has actually shown that social media has had a significant impact on our collective mental health as a society, specifically due to how easy it makes it to compare ourselves to other people. So according to the findings, this was the article that sort of summarized what they had found through this research. Quote, the study revealed that comparing yourself to other people on social media can be detrimental to your mental health, self-esteem, subjective well-being, and body image. The highlight real nature of social media means that the majority of content we are exposed to leaves us with the impression that others are doing better than us. Comparing our lives to those that we perceive as better off is referred to as an upward comparison and is damaging to our psychological well-being and the way we view ourselves. I love that it says the highlight real nature of social media. So I need you to hear this. Your life cannot possibly measure up to what other people post on social media because even their lives don't measure up to what they post on social media. It's their highlight reel. But when we spend hour after hour after hour scrolling through other people's highlight reels, a narrative forms in our mind that their life is far better than ours and that our life cannot possibly be worthwhile or enjoyable. Coveting kills contentment in your heart. And hear me on this, envy is a game that you can never win. It is a hamster wheel that you cannot ever hop off of. And here's why, because someone will always have more than you. Someone will always have something that you want. Someone will always be one step ahead, one life stage ahead, one tax bracket ahead of you. And if you live your life by envy, you will be perpetually discontent with your life. There's no stop to it. So follow me here. What if in an effort to keep us from being perpetually discontent with what we have, God gives us the instruction to not covet other people's stuff. What if that's actually him looking out for our general quality of life? What a gracious, thoughtful, intentional command that would be from the God of the universe to look out for us in that way. Coveting kills contentment and God wants to set us free from that. Second problem with coveting is that it kills community. It kills community. The more envious we are of what other people have, the less we are able to live in deep, meaningful relationships with those people over time. Let me try to show you what I mean. So this is James chapter four. Listen closely to what it says. What causes fights and quarrels among you as followers of Jesus? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? For instance, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You, what's that next word in the passage? You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So according to James, sometimes the reason that we experience conflict with other followers of Jesus in our life is actually because we covet what they have. Maybe that sounds far-fetched to you, but I want you to think about a few scenarios with me. Single folks in the room. Have you ever had another single friend of yours 
start dating someone, and all of a sudden find yourself very jealous, very envious of them as a result. Married folks in the room, have you ever found yourself wishing that your spouse would look or act or interact with you the way that a friend's spouse interacts with them? Those of you with kids in the room, have you ever found yourself envious of how well-behaved or how well-performing your friend's kids are compared to your own kids? Folks nearing retirement age in the room, have you ever found yourself jealous of how much earlier your friends are retiring than you or how much better prepared they were for retirement compared to you? Okay, and, and then in any of those situations along those lines, have you ever found that jealousy, that envious, that envious spirit, that covetousness causing bitterness and resentment in you towards that friend as a result? You ever found it bubbling up into conflict with them as a result? You ever find yourself nitpicking certain things about their life, things they do or say around you and get frustrated, but the frustration actually isn't about the things that you're nitpicking. It's all about the envious spirit that you have towards them in every arena of their life. That's exactly what James chapter four is saying. Why are there fights and quarrels among you? You covet, but you cannot get, so you fight. Coveting kills community. You, you cannot build a meaningful, deep relationship with someone that you are actively harboring resentment towards. It doesn't work like that. Relationships don't work like that. Friendships don't work like that. Here's another way that may be helpful to think about it. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 15, tells us as followers of Jesus that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's part of the command. It says we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, that we are to grieve or mourn with those who grieve and mourn. So the vision for a community of God's people in the scriptures is that when something worthy of rejoicing happens to another person, we would be able to rejoice along with them, right? So when someone gets a promotion at work that they've worked really hard to get, we celebrate, we rejoice with them. When someone gets married, we celebrate with them. When someone buys a house or graduates or gets a job, we celebrate with them. The goal is that whenever someone celebrates something within a community of faith, we would get to celebrate with them as God's people. But here's the thing, coveting will not allow us to do that. Coveting causes us to see other people's joys and other people's successes as a threat to our own joy and success, as competition for our own life, as little more than a reminder of what we currently don't have that they do have. One author actually said that coveting actually forces us to invert what Romans 12 says to do. It means that when, someone, when something good happens to someone else, we secretly mourn because it's not happening to us. So we actually mourn when other people rejoice. And when something bad happens to someone else, we secretly rejoice because it means that we're better off by comparison. So we, we actually rejoice when other people grieve. It, it reverts the whole process. It inverts the whole process. And listen, it is difficult to state just how detrimental that type of thinking is to us becoming the type of Jesus-centered family that we feel called to be here at City Church. Coveting kills community. It kills the ability to form and maintain deep community. And then lastly, Last problem with coveting is that it contradicts grace. It contradicts grace. 
So covetousness says, it operates on the principle that sounds something like, I always have less than I deserve. That's what coveting teaches us to believe. I always have less than what I deserve. Grace, on the other hand, says I always have more than I deserve. I always have more than I deserve. So covetousness feeds us the lie that what God has given us personally is quite literally never enough. That we're always lacking something that we need. We're always missing something that our lives would be complete if we had. And it prevents us from seeing the grace that God has set before us right now. The things that he's blessed us with, given us in our lives right this second. Which means if you want to stop coveting, you need an intentional reset on the grace that you've received and how it's far better than anything you don't yet have. Now, as always, an understanding of grace starts with an understanding of what we've been given through Jesus, specifically through his life, death, and resurrection. So take a look with me, opening lines of 2 Peter chapter 1. It says this, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through Jesus, we have, quote, everything we need, in Peter's words. Notice what Jesus himself says in John chapter six, talking about bread, which in context is a metaphor for his own body. He says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Okay, so could we not describe coveting as a continual, unending hunger and thirst for more? Isn't that what it is? It's, it's, it's a continual longing in us that never quite gets satisfied because we're always looking at what someone else has that is more than what we have. And if that's true, Jesus just told us that whoever comes to him and believes in him will hunger and thirst no more. The promise that is made over and over again in the scriptures is that understanding the grace of God is what allows us to resist the mindset that we never have enough. It teaches us that when we are inclined to believe we don't have what we need, we should go to Jesus where we can be reminded that in him we've been given everything we need and more. But I also don't think it stops just with the person and work of Jesus. God's grace, for sure, is centered on the person and work of Jesus, but it also goes beyond that. God's grace is also a way of talking about his ongoing, tangible provision for us in all arenas of life. So I'll give you a little Bible experiment to do. Next time you sit down for time in the scriptures, I want you to turn to the Psalms specifically, and I want you to count how many times the psalmists mention giving thanks to God. I'll set expectations for you. It's a lot. Like really, really often. It's one of the most frequently repeated phrases in the Psalms, possibly in the entire Bible. And you know what's even more fascinating about it? The biblical authors evidently don't even think you have to be in a good mood to give thanks. Like, like you don't even have to be having a good day for you to thank God for what you have. 
Some of the psalmists give thanks to God while people are literally hunting them down in order to kill them. People give thanks in the Bible right after horrible tragedy strikes their entire family and those they love. Paul gives thanks when he feels like he has plenty and when he feels like he is wasting away in prison and is near death. He still chooses to give thanks. Giving thanks in the Bible evidently is an all-season activity. In every season you're in, in every circumstance that you're in, it's something you can do regardless of what you do or don't have. It's something you can do regardless of how well or how poorly you feel like your life is going. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it actually says it this way, quote, give thanks in all circumstances. In how many circumstances? All. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Okay, if you're one of the millions upon millions of people that have desperately always wanted to know what God's will is for your life, I have good news for you. We just figured it out. God's will for your life is that you would give thanks in all circumstances. God's will is for you to give thanks. Gratitude Actual, conscious gratitude is one of the most powerful weapons at your disposal when it comes to fighting discontentment and covetousness in your life. That is the case that the Bible makes over and over again. But honestly, you don't even have to trust the Bible to know that, that how, that's how it works. Just plain old psychology is showing us that this is how it works. When you choose to fill your heart with gratitude, you have less and less of an ability to think about all the things that you don't yet have. Choose in every circumstance to be thankful and see if that doesn't melt away over time at at least some of your envy and discontentment. This past Wednesday night, I got together with my life group, we had Friendsgiving together. We made fantastic food. It was unbelievable. People in my life group are like lights out at preparing food, especially Thanksgiving food. And we sat around the table and we ate good food. And then at the end, we spent like 30, 45 minutes just talking about all the things in our life that we're thankful for. And man, when we left, when I tell you that my heart was full it was so full. A lot of you guys know some of the stuff that our church has been going through. You know it has not been an easy season for our leaders, for our church in general. And man, I left Friendsgiving with my life group feeling like things were great in my life. And you know what I didn't do when I got home from Friendsgiving? When I walked in the door of my house, I didn't go, man, my house is kind of small. Wish I had a bigger house. I wish I had more possessions. I wish I made more money. All of that was so far from my mind because I had just chosen to fill my heart with the things that I do have. So here's what I would recommend. If, if you struggle with any type of envy or covetousness or even just discontentment, which we can just go ahead and admit is pretty much all of us, right? If you struggle with any of that in your life, especially right now, Here's what I would suggest. This is a dead serious suggestion. At some point in the next few days, maybe even this afternoon, if you've got the time, just block out some time, grab a pen, grab some paper, a journal, something like that, and just write out a list of things that are evidence of God's grace in your life. And I'm dead serious about this. I know some of you are gonna roll your eyes at that, and that's fine. You can continue being discontent and dissatisfied with your life, but the rest of us, what we should probably do 
is sit down and reflect on the things that are evidences of God's grace in our life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can just start with the one we mentioned earlier, God's grace towards you through Jesus. His grace in sending his son to earth and to the cross and back from the grave to save you from a variety of things that you were caught up in. That's a freebie. That's a pretty significant evidence of God's grace in your life. And then from there, just take a survey of your life. What do you have that you could be thankful for? Now, notice I didn't say what are you thankful for because that's kind of the point of this exercise, right? Most of us don't instinctively notice and express gratitude for these things in our life. Most of us take them for granted a majority of the time. So it's gonna take some intentional, undistracted time and thoughtfulness. But what do you have that you could be thankful for? What about your job? I know some of us hate our job, that's fine, but you do have a job and that's more than some people can say. So there's probably aspects of it you can be thankful for. If you're in school, there's another one. That's an incredible opportunity. Even if you are racking up thousands of dollars of student debt, still you can be thankful that those types of loans are available and that in theory, one day you'll be able to pay them back. How about a roof over your head? There's one I think at least most of us have. How about the ability that most of us have to go and purchase and eat food whenever we need it? For a lot of us, how about the ability to go out to eat in any of the fantastic restaurants that are here in our city? Knoxville, I would argue, has a disproportionately fantastic food and drink scene that for the size city that it is. That is God's common grace towards us as Knoxvillians. <laughs> you heard it here first. How about living in one of the best regions of the country to live, especially this time of year? Fall in East Tennessee, you kidding me? I mean, I get that it's like 80 degrees this year, but still, you can go outside. Uh, how about your life group? How about your friends? How about your family? Okay, maybe we need to work on that last one for some of us, but how about our family in theory? I would be willing to bet that if you were willing to put forth just a little bit of time and energy and thoughtfulness, you could find things in your life that are evidence of God's grace towards you things to be thankful and, and actively express gratitude to God for. Those things do exist. Our, our minds just tend not to gravitate towards them when we are obsessing over all the things we don't yet have, all the things we wish we had, all the things our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers have that we've convinced ourselves that we're miserable without. So I'm saying, motivated and empowered by the grace of God, Let's choose, as 1 Thessalonians says, to give thanks in all circumstances. Let's choose to call our attention time and time again, even when we don't feel like it, to the things that we do have, to the things that we have been given. So gratitude, I would argue, is the first way to resist the pull towards envying and coveting Others. I'll give you one more, and we're going to talk about this one a lot over the next few weeks as a church family. The next one is generosity. Generosity. And I realize that nobody likes it when the church brings this one up. I can appreciate that. 
But here, I'm not even talking about giving money to our church or any church for that matter. That stuff matters, but that's not even what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about regularly giving away your money and your possessions to other people in need of those things. That's generosity in the Bible's view. Now here's why I say that generosity is absolutely vital to fighting discontentment and envy in your heart. Because discontentment and envy and coveting feed off of one fundamental flawed belief and it sounds like this, I never have enough. That's the lie, I never have enough. But generosity operates off of exactly the opposite principle. Generosity chooses to operate on the principle that I always have more than enough. Otherwise, how would I give stuff away? The only way to be generous with our money and our possessions is by assuming that we either already have more than we need or that we will have what we need even when we choose to be generous. Generosity teaches us at a physical, tangible level that we do have more than we need. Every time we send money to that friend who is having a hard time, we are training our hearts to believe that we have more than we need. Every time you look through your closet and give away probably half of the stuff in that closet that you do not need, you are training your heart to operate on the principle that God has provided you with more than enough. Generosity forces your heart to operate on the principle that God has provided for you and will continue to provide for you. You you are teaching your brain when you are generous to remember that you are operating out of an abundance and not out of a deficit. Which means that if you make generosity a pattern in your life, you know what I'd be willing to bet happens? I would bet your heart starts to believe that principle more and more tangibly more and more consistently. If you want to be more and more done with envy and coveting in your life, generosity is a key part of how you get there. Now, a bit later during the gathering, we are actually gonna talk during the announcements about some specific ways that we as a church are going to participate in generosity together this Christmas season. Really pumped about it. Can't wait to explain it to you here in a bit. More on that at the end of the service. But for now, I just want you to consider using that generosity as a tangible method to push back on the mentality that says, I don't ever have enough. So we're out of time for this morning, but here's what we're gonna do next. As we do every single week as a church family, we are all gonna go to the tables throughout this room, those of us who are followers of Jesus, and we're gonna remember together the greatest act of generosity that the world has ever seen. And that happened at the cross of Jesus. The moment where God did not even withhold his own son for our benefit. As we've already mentioned, that is where any of our generosity and change has to start as followers of Jesus. It's where any amount of being done with envy and coveting has to start is at the cross of Jesus. So every week we go to the tables together in response to the gospel. And we remember God's generosity towards us and we ask him by his spirit to make us into generous people as a result. We go to the tables and we remember that what we've already been given is more than enough. That he is the bread of life and anyone who comes to him will never hunger or thirst again. Anyone who comes to him will never have need of more. 
that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So we're gonna come to the tables together, we're gonna remember the gospel, and we're gonna ask that Jesus, by his spirit, would help that mentality to be ingrained into us as we live in response to what he's done. Let me pray for us.